I don't know if um, you do this in the summer. I have this bad habit. I um, try not to look at the news. Um, I like to enjoy the weather and enjoy what's going on. And frankly, I find the news depressing. I don't think anyone actually, you know, tunes into the evening news anymore. Um, I, maybe there's like six people who do, but I mean, we, we look online, right? And I, I literally just did an exercise um, as just before I was coming up to see what is the top headline on CNN.com. North Korea threatens firm action against U.S., And all you need to do is take a look at one of the news websites, and if you can get past the political shenanigans going on here in the U.S., you might actually be able to find a world news story. North Korea threatening action, or, or terrorists and unrest in Jerusalem, or pick one, and we see that evil is alive and well in the world, and it's really easy for us, I think, to look at Kim Jong-un or ISIS and think evil. They make nice targets because they're over there somewhere, and it's, I mean, Kim Jong-un almost is like the cartoon evil character. I mean, he's almost like Boris from... Rocky and Bullwinkle. I mean, he's really that exaggerated, right? And it's easy to to say, okay, that's evil. And sometimes we're tempted to find those people that are a little bit closer to home, I won't name any names, and say, okay, that's clearly evil. But we don't want to say that about our neighbor. Well, maybe that one neighbor, right? (laughs) And we certainly don't want to say it about ourselves. And we're very good at deflecting blame, at changing the subject. Otherwise, kind of filling up our time and our minds with things, anything really, to distract us from the truth. We would like the song to go, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wonderful guy like me. Right? That's what we would like it to be. But it's not. We all know that it's true. And people of faith, doesn't matter if we're in the Old Testament or the New, even God's own people, we have always known it's not true of us. The Russian novelist and Christian thinker Alexander Solzhenitsyn had a famous work called The Gulag Archipelago. And this is what he said in it. It would, if only... There were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessarily necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the dividing line between good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? And that's kind of the situation we're looking at both today in our own world and looking at in the book of Habakkuk. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to go back and forth on how I say 
Habakkuk, Habakkuk, the whole time because I have a lifetime's worth of history in the way that I was brought up saying it, and I hear my seminary professors in the background telling me I said it wrong, and I still force of habit. I'm going to go back and forth. I'm going to tell you that right now. Habakkuk didn't have CNN or Fox, but he knew the news. He knew his history. For 300 years, the Assyrian Empire had dominated the Near East. They had terrorized the Near East. They were brutal. They were cruel and merciless. These are the guys who invented crucifixion. In 722 BC, about 100 years before Habakkuk's life, Assyria had crushed the northern kingdom of Israel, destroyed Samaria. Only a year later, more or less, their king Sennacherib besieged Jerusalem and Judah became under the thumb of Assyria as well. If you want to read more, you can see it in 2 Kings chapters 16 to 18. But all of that's in the past. Now, today, in Habakkuk's life, Assyria is in decline. And there are whispers from the east. A new, old power is rising. Because you see, for centuries, millennia really, the city of Babylon has flourished. The Sumerians and the Akkadians had empires reaching out from there. The Amorites did too. We've heard their name in the Bible. And you've heard of them in junior high history when you've heard of the Code of Hammurabi. Those were the Amorites. And they started in Babylon. Their empire started. Babylon was a city of gods and kings, of laws and gardens and learning. Even the Assyrians had given respect to the city of Babylon. It was probably a mistake in retrospect. Because about the time of the writing of this book, the vassal king of the city of Babylon, his name was Nabopolassar, nice name, easy to remember, made an alliance with the Medes. In 612 BC, they laid siege to the city of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And in three months, that huge capital city fell. And now they have their sights set on the west. And that's the backdrop. And oh, by the way, you've heard of Nabopolassar's son. He was Nebuchadnezzar. And so the prophets, this is the background. The prophets Hosea and Amos and Jonah and Micah and Isaiah all warned the northern king of of Israel, hey, you are doing wicked deeds in the sight of the Lord. Judgment is coming. And it came in the form of Assyria. Habakkuk, along with Nahum and Zephaniah and Jeremiah, have done the same for Judah. And it's probably sometime around 612 B.C. that this is going on right now. Somewhere in that. And in 605, for the first time, Babylon 
attacks Jerusalem. They do it three times, and in 586, they destroy it. I just read an article this last week that an archaeological dig in Jerusalem is finding evidence of, that, of those sieges. It's interesting to see that. And the people of Judah, according to Habakkuk, have forsaken their part of the covenant. And he cries out to God, How long, Lord, are you going to let this go? All I see is violence and fighting. And in verse 4 of chapter 1, he said this, The law has become paralyzed, and there is no justice in the courts. The wicked far outnumber the righteous, so that justice has become perverted. No justice, and what is called justice gets twisted. Sounds scarily familiar to me. Sounds a lot like today. And Habakkuk knows the truth. He knows his people have done wrong and they need correction. They've forgotten who they are. They've forgotten the covenant. And they've become just like the very people who oppress them. And he wants a return to the truth. He wants the people of the covenant to actually live that way. To be who they're supposed to be. To be God's people. And so he says, God, uh, please do something. And I don't think we're so different from those people 2,600 years ago. We, as the church, broadly speaking, especially here in the West, the people of God, the recipients of the new covenant in the blood of Christ, have failed. We have too often sold our birthright, our place as the people of God, for political power or for relative comfort. We have looked down our noses at the people that are different than us. And we've made it seem as if it's because we're right and they're wrong. When secretly, maybe not so secretly, what it really is, is we don't like the fact that they look at the world differently than us. And we don't want to be confronted by the fact that we don't live out what we say we believe. Or maybe we secretly just want what they have. The people of Israel, God's covenant people, were called to make God's name known among the nations. To show that there was a true God in Israel. That was their job. That it wasn't the God of the storms or the God of the crops or the sun... It wasn't some petty God that needed humans to do things for them so that they could be taken care of, but the God, the God who created it all, and he chose the people not to serve him, but to represent him. And all the way back in the book of Exodus, we see this. Moses is on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, and God says this to the people. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among the peoples of the earth. For all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, 
my holy nation. You see, Israel's story lies in the background of the book we're looking at. And it's Judah's story. It's our story as well. We are called to show or to bear witness to the real God. Not the God of nationalism or the God of commerce or power or progress or whatever our pet cause is. In 1 Peter 2, Peter says in verse 5, You are living stones that God is building into His spiritual temple. What's more, you are His holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for He called you out of the darkness into His wonderful light. And the reason why I bring this up is because I think it's important for us to remember as we look especially today at this passage that we remember why Israel's there, why we are there. That this is not just something unattached from us. Sometimes we get this idea that the Old Testament and the New Testament almost show a different God. And they don't. This is the same God. And Judah's story is our story, and we need to learn from it. You see, Habakkuk wants a response. He wants correction for the people of God. And then in verses 5 to 11, we saw last week, God says, okay. Here's what I'm going to do. Right now, Assyria is in decline. I'm raising up the Babylonians. They're coming. They're racing across the desert sands like a wind. Correction is coming hard and hot and soon. And Habakkuk doesn't like the answer. We don't either, really. I mean, suddenly the correction that we asked for is decidedly uncomfortable for us. God, discipline your church. Maybe, God, bring our nation back to you. And that desire gets lost when we see how the correction is coming. I hope it's not a crazy person like Kim Jong-un. I hope the correction doesn't come in the form of ISIS. Wait a minute, God. How can you seriously use that person to correct me? I mean, we've messed up, right? But them? You do know who they are, right? And that's our response. So today, we ask the question, what do we do when God's correction seems cruel? And we're in Habakkuk chapter 1. Verse 12 through chapter 2, verse 1. I'm reading from the NLT, and this is what it says. O Lord my God, my Holy One, you who are eternal, surely you do not plan to wipe us out. O Lord, our rock, you have sent these Babylonians to correct us, to punish us for our many sins. 
but you are pure and cannot stand the sight of evil. Will you wink at their treachery? Should you be silent while the wicked swallow up people more righteous than they? Are we only fish to be caught and killed? Are we only sea creatures who have no leader? Must we be strung up on their hooks and caught in their nets while they rejoice and celebrate? Then they will worship their nets and burn incense in front of them. These nets are the gods who have made us rich, they will claim. Will you let them get away with this forever? Will they succeed forever in their heartless conquests? I will climb up to my watchtower and stand at my guard post. There I will wait to see what the Lord says and how he will answer my complaint. Pray with me, please. Father, we know that we are all too often guilty of sometimes even significant sins of not living up to the calling you have given us, not living up to, the, to being conformed to the image of your Son. And we know that we deserve correction, but frankly, we don't like the form it comes in. And I pray today that you would help us to see how we should react and what we should do. For it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. It is, I would say, not easy when we're faced with correction. We don't like it. And if we read this passage too quickly, we're likely to miss the choices that Habakkuk makes. So I want us to look today at three choices that we need to make when we're facing correction from God that seems cruel. The first choice that we need to make is to start with God. Because our temptation is to focus on the injustice of the situation we face. It's our natural reaction. Woe is me. Look at how terrible my life is. It is unfair. God, how could you do this to me? The subtle really tricky part about this kind of thinking is that it's not completely wrong. You see, the most effective lies are not the ones that are completely outrageous. The most effective lies are the ones that contain truth. And so, there is injustice in what's coming on some level. To Judah. God is going to use, and he even says it, a terrible and cruel people. And often, it's tempting to think that Habakkuk is just complaining. That we get to just complain. After all, look at verse 13. Will you wink? At their treachery, should you be silent while the wicked swallow up people more righteous than they? But the problem is, we like to get ahead of ourselves. We like to start with ourselves, and that's not what Habakkuk does. If we blow right by his example, we will miss where he starts. 
he starts by remembering the God of Israel. And this might be the most critical part of this passage. This is his starting point. He starts with God, not himself. Not his needs, not the situation, not the problems, not the things that we are facing. And if we don't start with God, we make the wrong choice. Because when we start with ourselves, we start by orienting our lives on something that is never going to give us the answer we seek. We're just going to get stuck. Habakkuk doesn't do this. O Lord my God, my Holy One, You who are eternal. The opening line, not even a full verse. And there is so much packed into that one line that we could spend all day there. We won't, but we could. You see, Habakkuk is having a problem with God's correction. Why? Because on the surface of it, at least, he says, the correction that I'm seeing coming, that you just told me is coming, doesn't square with who you are. With what I know of who you are. How is it that this God... A God of your character can do this. So what does he do? He starts with God. Who he is. Who his character is and what he's done. And this changes our focus when we do this. This one choice, start with God instead of starting with ourselves, can be the difference between a sinful reaction and a sanctified one. Between honoring God in and through a lament, and that's what Habakkuk does, on the one hand, and frankly being a whiner and just accusing God on the other. Who is God? Habakkuk says, Yahweh is God. Side note, anytime you see the word Lord in all small capital letters in your Bible, that's an indicator that the word being used is Yahweh. You can usually look at the beginning of your Bible and somewhere in the translation notes or something at the beginning and they'll tell you how they, they translate divine names. And usually this is a common English practice. So there's your free tip for the morning. Yahweh, the God who is, the one who is, the one without whom nothing can be, This is God's personal name. The name of the God of Israel, not just any God. The God of the covenant. The one who chose Israel. And that's not all. O Lord, my God. The English word that we translated God here is Elohim. The emphasis here is on power. So Yahweh Elohim. Not just any God. The self-existent God who is powerful, who is my God, Habakkuk says. This is the only time in the entire Old Testament where we get this exact construction. Generally speaking, if you get it one time, you should pay attention. Habakkuk complains to God, to his own God. The God who has claimed him. And there's a reason why he can come to God in this way. Because he belongs to God and God belongs to him. He is a child of the covenant 
and it gives him standing. And he goes further. My Holy One. There's my again. It's one thing to question God. It's another to do it rightly. And Habakkuk does it rightly. He starts with who God is. The self-existent, powerful God who is holy, pure, set apart. The implication of saying this is that by His very nature, God can't do wrong. And so he starts out by responding, frankly, to what he sees as an evil thing coming by saying, God, you can't do wrong. And he's literally saying, you have always been this way. You are eternal. It's actually a rhetorical question. Are you not from everlasting? And he goes on again in the same verse and says, you are our rock. Richard Patterson in his Cornerstone Commentary on Habakkuk says that often the Old Testament uses this term to describe God as a place of refuge for the trusting believer. So the same God who sends correction and punishment is the refuge. They're one and the same. They're not contradictory things. They are necessarily connected. And any parent knows that this is true. It's because we are the refuge for our children that we have to correct. It's precisely because that we are that refuge that we can correct in a way that we know is for the good of our children, not out of cruelty. So Habakkuk tells us and shows us the way to start. And when we question God, when we question His correction, we do well to start where He starts. This is the God who has proven Himself to be holy and just, to be trustworthy. Of course, this is the question we're really asking. Right? When we see God's correction and we think it's unfair, what we're really asking is, God, are you trustworthy? Are you really for me? For the Christian, starting with God means starting with Jesus. Jesus said, I and the Father are one in John 10.30. And when asked by Philip, show us the Father, he said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. In John 14, 9. If we want to understand who God is, what God is like, we need to look at Jesus. We need to start there. Colossians 1, 15 to 20 is a great start. It's called the Christ hymn. In Christ, the fullness of God dwells bodily. We have to start with Jesus, who he was, what he was like, what he taught, and what he did. And Habakkuk recites God's character, who God is, back to God. And it's a reminder to himself, it's a reminder to us, of the trust we can place in God, even when we can't see how or why it makes sense. And it's the basis for a second choice, which is to seek God's answers. You see, our temptation when faced with what we perceive as injustice with suffering of any kind, really, 
but especially when we think it's unfair or out of proportion. Our temptation is unthinking reaction. We just react. It's kind of like autopilot. Or the new cars that can parallel park for you, you just press the button and there they go. Like, I'm not interested in a self-driving car because I like to drive. But the parallel park function, I'm kind of, that sounds good to me. I hate parallel parking. But we just put it on, like pressing a button, and we react. And we don't think. We kind of go into defend-at-all-costs mode. We try to justify and make it all about ourselves. And sometimes we put a pretty face on it and make it seem like it's not all about us, but we know deep down it is. And isn't it interesting that when we react in this way, when we choose to react, and I believe it is a choice, there's no way that we can start with God because we make it all about us. But that's not what Habakkuk does. He doesn't simply react. He doesn't say, woe is me, hey God, this is unfair. He asks real questions. All right, for some of you in this room, this is going to be a a difficult thing. For others of you, this is going to be easy. When you're a teenager, and you get a crush on whoever that person is, wasn't it really easy to fall in love with the idea of the person, not the actual person? And the more you get to know the actual person, the more you find that the idea and the person are not at all what we thought they were. And you find yourself going to great lengths to defend the person when you know deep down something's off. The beautiful thing on the outside and the thing on the inside are really different. And sooner or later, you have to deal with the reality that what you thought is not what is. You have to face the tough questions. And sometimes, I think we're afraid. The reason that we're afraid is because we're afraid that the God on the inside is not the God who we said we believe in, that we love. And Habakkuk doesn't shy away from the tough questions. These are the questions he asks. God, surely you're not going to wipe us out, verse 12. God, are you, in verse 13, are you just going to wink at the Babylonians' treachery? You do see what they're like, right? Again, in verse 13, why are you silent? We're bad, but they're worse. Verses 14 and 15. We're your people, right? So how come we're like fish to be caught and strung up on a stringer so that they can feast on us later? Verse 16. You see they're gloating, right? They don't even recognize that you raised them up. They think it was all them. They don't see their need for you. They chalk it up to their skill, their power, their might. They wouldn't know the meaning of the word repentance if it bit them. They're pagan. Even their religion denies you. As a side note, the Babylonians here in verse 16, where they 
worship their nets and burn incense in front of themselves, they show the futility of religion apart from God. We end up worshiping the things we do. That's what the Babylonians are doing. And finally, in verse 17, Habakkuk asks, how long? They're doing all the things that I asked you to correct us for. And they're doing it worse. They chew up the peoples of the world and spit them out. It's not just us that they're punishing. They're destroying everyone in their path. And they don't care. And they're not going to stop. And God, how can you do this? This is not just correction. You know what I love about this? This is scripture. This is inspired by God. And God can handle our toughest questions. Sometimes we think, oh, we can't ask questions. Sometimes... We get confronted by someone who's not a believer with a question and we're tempted to think that something new has come up and that I don't know what to do with this. We hear the person who says, I can't believe in a God who, and then fill in the blank, who would let this happen, who would punish for this, whatever it is. And we think that we're the first people who have ever thought of these questions. And 2,600 years ago, Habakkuk says to God, Hey, what gives? How can you do this? There's nothing new. There's no question that we can ask God that he hasn't heard or can't handle. The specifics of the situation changes, and the technology changes, but the issues don't change. When suffering comes... When God's correction seems cruel, we get the choice and the opportunity to ask why. We might not like the answer. We might not even get an answer that we can completely understand, but we get to ask. God never tells us not to. The key is to build off of our first choice, to remember who God is and what he's like. And that's what we see here. He doesn't react. He cries out to God. For answers because he knows who, go- who God is and he doesn't see how the answer he was given fits. He's not belligerent, he's not whining, he's not claiming to be better than God or more holy or more just. He established at the very beginning of this passage who God was. And at the very beginning of the book, he established that Israel deserved correction. So really, his questions boil down to this. God, how does your response square with your character and your covenant? How can you let this evil come to be, even if it's to correct us? Are we only pray for those stronger than us? Why do you let them claim your glory? As much as these questions are about the coming correction for Judah, they're really about who God is. About his relationship with his people. They're, frankly, the questions that we have. We long for things to be more than what they are. We know that they're supposed to be more. That we are built for a relationship with God who is better than us. Not just more, not just bigger or stronger. 
We're made to communicate with God. Habakkuk says, you are our God. I want to be with you. We should want to be with you. But something is off. And so the questions that he has matter. Our questions about God matter. They matter because they're asking whether or not this is the God we were made for. This is the cry of the world around us who doesn't believe in God. Most people don't question if there is a God. Some do, but most don't. Most question which God. What is he like? Can we trust him? And those are important questions. And they're not easy questions. And we come to them with our own expectations and baggage and hang-ups and more. And too often, we're not really looking for answers. We're really looking to justify ourselves, to make ourselves feel better. To let ourselves off the hook. But Habakkuk asks real questions. And that's the danger of asking questions. You might get an answer that you don't like. Habakkuk wants to hear from God, the real God, the one he trusts. And he cries out to God in prayer, asking the hard questions, and he expects an answer. And he can only ask the questions that he does ask, the way that he asks them, because he knows how to. He knows who God is. And so his questions are built on that solid foundation. More than his feelings, more than his desires, more than what he thinks is right. And that foundation was what we saw in choice number one. Who is God? He looks backward to the word of God and to the deeds of God so that he can look forward beyond just his experience. We still get to ask these questions. The disciples asked Jesus lots of questions. Jesus didn't tell them not to. They knew Jesus, they trusted him, and that's what we're called to do as well. And Habakkuk knows who God is. He communes with him, he questions him, and he asks good questions. And it's why he makes his third and final choice, which is to stand guard. This is where the rubber hits the road. It's where life happens. truth is, God's correction sometimes seems all out of proportion to us. It can seem wrong, and God can seem untrustworthy or not in control. And I'm not sure which of those is more scary. You know, best case, worst case scenario of either not trustworthy or not in control, I'm not sure which one's worse. But the operative word is seem. It seems that way. Because we only see a part. We see a small part. So what we do next, after we ask the questions, really matters. Sometimes we just get stuck in the questions. And if we stop there, we've made a huge mistake. Because our temptation seems to be to do one of two things. Run away. I hear Monty Python in my head when I say that. Or we become the monster we hate. Fight or flight, right? Physiological response. You get confronted with a bad situation and you either run away or do battle. When it comes to our survival, it's a good thing. 
But when it comes to responding to God's correction to us, not so much. A lot of people, when confronted with the consequences of their sin, or the sins of someone they love, simply run away. Either from the situation, or maybe even from God Himself. We run away from marriages that we've ruined, or the consequences of our action in small things at work. We say to God, If that's what you're like, then I want nothing to do with you. See ya. We've all witnessed people who've done that. We run away from the correction because we don't want to give up whatever it is that we're holding on to. Why did Israel keep having the same problems over and over again? Why do we? Because we don't want to give those things up. We want to do it our way. We want to be the ones in control. We think we know better. We think that the things right here, right now, are more important than the things that God says we need. We don't think we're really that bad. So we walk. Or others fight. I know I've met a lot of Christians like this. You probably have too. They're mad. At pretty much everyone. Anyone who says something they disagree with, for sure... It doesn't matter if the person they disagree with is a believer or not. They're going to find a way to shoot that person down. Usually, they wrap their anger in nice Christian-sounding words, right? But instead of living as people of God, of loving the world, of being that kingdom of priests whose job is to show God, to prove God to the world, what do they end up being? They end up being like the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Cruel and bloodthirsty and anything but loving. Habakkuk doesn't do the fight or flight thing. His example is patient vigilance that expects a response. He makes the difficult, the harder choice, and he chooses to stand guard. This is what he says in 2.1. I will climb up to my watchtower and stand at my guard post, there I will wait to see what the Lord says and how he will answer my complaint. Rebuke, really. He wasn't happy about God's correction. I can't say this enough. But he remembered who God is, and he set out his questions, and he waited for God's response. The Hebrew in that last phrase about how he will answer my complaint is tricky. And scholars are divided on whether it should read as God is going to answer Habakkuk's rebuke or Habakkuk will have to answer God's rebuke at his questions. Either is possible. And it could be that he is waiting for God's answer or it could be that he knows that challenging God is a risky business and he'd better be ready to respond. Either way, it's easy to get bogged down in, in, the, in the question there. Either way, he does something very important. He doesn't decide that he's going to solve the contradiction that he sees between God's character and the coming correction. He doesn't decide that the final word is his. He decides to wait to see what God will do. And so should we. 
This is the hardest part. You know, you, you, you're around church long enough, and it, you can decide to start with God. You can decide to ask questions. You can decide to ask safe questions, because we get trained to do that. That's why I love kids, because especially, you know, I, I worked with this last year about 10 junior high boys, and they haven't been trained not to ask the hard questions yet. Right? We get older and we get trained not to ask the hard questions. Right? God can handle those hard questions. But at the end of the day, we have to stop, be patient, stand guard, and watch for what God is doing. That's what God says in verse 5 of chapter 1 see what I am doing. Right? We have to wait to see how he responds. Being patient is tough. But in order for us to do that, for us to be in a position to see and hear from God, we have to do what Habakkuk did. What does he do? He climbs the watchtower. You have to be alert and pay attention. I think for us that means at least prayer. That's what Habakkuk is doing this entire book. He's praying, he's talking to God, he's conversing with God, even when it seems like God is simply going to be silent. And the second part is scripture reading, because you can't know God when you don't pay attention to the one way that he reveals himself to us, to what he's done and how he's like. And I would add, think about the metaphor of a watchtower. It's never only manned by one person. There's never only one guy standing in the watchtower, right? And a watchtower is not something to sit out in the middle of nowhere with nothing around. It's on the edge of the city. It's at the edge of the fortress. It looks in multiple directions. It's designed to protect. It's designed to be the line of defense, the alert. And it's never one guy on his own You have to be part of something larger. Frankly, we have to be part of the body of Christ. Christianity is not simply an individualist religion. Right? It's not just me and God. It's us and God. And we need one another. And if we don't, here's what happens. I'm looking this direction... And I can't see what God's doing over here. And that's why we need all of us. Or, if you're alone, you're likely to fall asleep on duty. To get your eyes off God altogether. As we finish, you know, God never gives us all of the answers that we seek. We just don't get them. That's the way that this passage today ends. God certainly doesn't do things the way that we want him to do them. But over and over again, Scripture shows that he's trustworthy. I am reminded of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where the kids are talking to the beavers. And they're talking about Aslan. And this is how C.S. Lewis talks about who God is. And they ask, is he safe? 
This is what the kids ask. And Mr. Beaver looks at them and says, haven't you been listening to what Mrs. Beaver has said? Of course he isn't safe. But he's the king. And he's good. And we confuse safe with good. And that's part of our downfall. Over and over again, scriptures show that God is trustworthy. Our questions are real. We get to ask them. The, face, the things we face are real. The correction we need is real. But our hope is even more real. And I want to end by reading from Hebrews 12. This is sort of the New Testament response to Habakkuk. In verse 1, we'll close with this passage. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our face because of the joy awaiting him. He endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you have not yet given your lives in your struggle against sin. And have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when, the, when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. As you endure this Divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Whoever heard of a child who is never disciplined by its father? If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means that you are illegitimate and not really his children at all. Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in His holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in that way. So take a new grip on your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees. Mark out a straight path for your feet that those who are weak and lame will not be, fall, but become strong. Amen and amen.